Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 4 of Superman and Batman. I am Michael Bradley, your host, and this is a show where we celebrate more than 60 years of the world's finest heroes by looking at randomly selected Superman and Batman team-ups from the pages of World's Finest Comics. After starting the show on the threshold of the Silver Age, jumping ahead 30 years to the Bronze Age in Episode 2, and then swinging again back to the Silver Age in Episode 3, this time we're doing the Time Warp once again. And before I make a joke about it being just a jump to the left and then a step to the right, I'm going to put my hands on my hips, bring my knees in tight, and tell you that it's the pelvic thrust that really drives you in say yay yay yay. And that this episode, we are heading back to the halcyon days of members-only jackets, glam metal, and Reaganomics. That's right, folks, the 1980s. This episode, we are looking at World's Finest Comics number 299, with a January 1984 cover date and costing 75 cents, our most expensive issue on the show to date. Issue 299 of World's Finest Comics was released on October 27th, 1983, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. The cover is by Ed Hannigan and Klaus Janssen, and shows a crowd cheering as Superman, chained and restrained by two muscle-bound hooded figures, is led to the beheading block, and Batman, shirtless, ladies, and wielding an axe that I'm pretty sure he stole from a time-traveling 90s image character, standing at the ready to act as executioner. It's an interesting cover. Uh, it's it's kind of misleading from what we get inside in several ways, and I'm, I'm not really sure why Batman is shirtless, ladies. But it's well drawn. I mean, Ed Hannigan does a, a solid job on both characters, and, and Klaus Jansen is a good inker, so... Uh, turning inside, we get, for the very first time on the show, a book-length story. I talked in the second episode about the Dollar Comics era for the title. That ended with issue 282, and beginning with issue 285, the backup strips in the title were dropped in favor of telling longer stories with Superman and Batman. And with only a couple of exceptions, for the rest of the book's run, each issue was a full-issue story with the world's finest team. Credits for this issue are David Anthony Kraft Script, Gene Colan and Steve Mitchell Art, Ben Oda Letterer, Carl Gafford Colorist, and Roger Sliffer Editor. And our 24-page story is titled The Shadow of the Executioner. Which is a much cooler title than the story actually turns out to be. But let's dig in. We begin with Superman and Batman standing among the fallen bodies of members of something called the Pantheon and planning to go after the Pantheon's most powerful member, a being called Zeta, who disappeared inside something called the Cosmic Tree, which looks kind of like the bastard love child of Crazy Quilt and those creepy talking trees from The Wizard of Oz. After a two-page lover's quarrel stemming from events in recent issues, the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight decide to follow Zeta into the tree, despite not knowing what danger awaits them. Within moments, they are transported into an inky void and come face to face with Zeta himself. Zeta, who looks like a red sombrero-wearing 
twenty foot tall version of the of the Snoths from the Muppet Show. You know those pink uh, horn faced fuzzballs in the Manamana skit. And Zeta tells them that eh, he he just doesn't really want to fight anymore. He just kind of wants to chill out and max and relax all cool. Maybe maybe shoot some b-ball outside of the school. Zeta says that he and the Pantheon were only a small part of something far more problematic, and that if Superman and Batman want to continue to fight against it, they will find themselves in different worlds. And that probably means that in the second season, Lisa Bonet and Marissa Tomei's characters will be written out, and Sinbad will get more screen time. We then get a flashback of events leading up to this issue. Batman was trying to unravel a murder and ran into the Pantheon, who apparently are humans that have been mutated by the Cosmic Tree. Meanwhile, Superman had been all over the globe stemming the effects of earthquakes caused by the Cosmic Tree, and this led to a fight against someone called Omicron, who probably is not a Transformer, even though it kind of sounds like a Transformer, and eventually Superman crossed paths with Batman and they fought Zeta. Meanwhile, another member of the Pantheon, Mew, because they're all named after Greek letters for some unknown reason, rocketed himself to space and began drilling downward into the moon's core. So, Superman and Batman tell Zeta that they are ready to face any danger that comes their way, and Zeta teleports them away. A microsecond later, Batman finds himself surrounded by robed, green-skinned aliens. Or, or not necessarily aliens, but creatures of some sort. One of the creatures explains that their race is threatened by overpopulation. As such, they are constantly searching for other planets to colonize. The cosmic tree acts as a sort of souped-up silver surfer to their galactus, so to speak, you know, seeking out hospitable planets and then providing passage to it for the entire race. As Earth is next on their list... Part of their race supports exterminating all life on the planet. But this group that Batman is speaking to is morally opposed to genocide and asks for Batman's help. Meanwhile, Superman finds himself surrounded by other creatures similar to those with Batman. But these are led by a trio of seers called Past, Present, and Future. Present explains that in the past, not the seer past, but in the actual past, the time past, uh, that migrating through the tree had saved their race from extinction. But now, the quote-unquote evil ones are controlling the temple and preventing a new migration, thus dooming their entire race. And Present claims that Superman is a great savior who will help them overcome these evil ones. One of the creatures is doubtful about Superman's ability and attacks Present. Superman confidently you know, because he's the hero and all, steps between them, but the creature's spear stabs Superman in the chest, wounding him. And as two of the creatures take Superman before the leader, Present runs off, wondering how he could have been so wrong about Superman's power, but just brushing it off since no one was hurt, except Superman. We then get a quick cutaway, reminding us that Mew continues his drilling through the moon, possibly to fatal effect of two astronauts, and then we're back to Batman, who tells the creatures that he will join their fight, but tries to convince them that they should solve the stalemate without fighting. The creatures say that every time they send someone through to the other side, this emissary is killed, but Batman suggests they send a scout to check things out. Back with Superman, 
present tells him that it was he who programmed the Pantheon, I, I guess using the cosmic tree to do so. And he also explains that his life force is somehow connected to the cosmic tree, and if both don't get to the new world soon, both will die. And the leader, like the creatures with Batman, says that anyone they've sent to the other side has been killed. Despite his loss of powers, however, Superman agrees to help the creatures, not by going through the tree as the others have, but by trying to climb it. And in the ultimate test of a hero, Superman begins his trek. He fights through the pain, pulling himself ever upward. His muscles strain and his body aches as he continues forward with an iron will. But even the Man of Steel can only take so much, and soon his will is not enough. Superman loses his grip, falling backward to a certain doom. But, in the nick of time, in swings the caped crusader, saving his friend from a grisly end. The two heroes find respite on a branch of the cosmic tree and compare notes, soon realizing that they've each been told only half the story. Both groups of creatures want the same result, a place to expand their civilization, but they simply disagree on how to get there with Superman's group seeking quick genocide and Batman's group preferring to let the tree eliminate all life, thus, in theory, absolving them of, you know, any moral responsibility. And present, well, he's seeking to speed the whole thing up, which is why he sent Mew to burrow through the moon in hopes of destroying it, which would cause, obviously, untold havoc on Earth. Before the world's finest heroes can come to a resolution, though, a group of Batman's creatures discover that they've been talking and determine them both to be traitors. But Batman quickly salvages the situation, claiming that he captured Superman as a spy, and he can prove it by executing him. Shortly, the two are taken to the temple. Superman is bound and put on the chopping block, while Batman raises an axe above his head. The Dark Knight swings for Superman's neck, but diverts the axe at the last possible moment, kicking Superman to the side and telling him to run. As Batman uses the axe to fend off the creature, Superman runs off. Soon recharged by the light of the yellow sun, he rockets into space, diving at Mew and hurling the creature into deeper space moments before it explodes, and thereby saving the moon. Superman then rockets back to Earth, eager to return to aid Batman, But as he lands by the cosmic tree, he finds the opening has closed, leaving no access. And our issue ends with Superman by the tree, wondering how to help his friend. This issue puts me in a a kind of difficult spot. It's part four of a five-part story, which presents a whole host of problems. And worse, I'm I'm not really a fan of the art. And I know I might get a little flack for that bit, so, so let's start with my comments about the art. I know that Gene Colan is one of the greats of comic book history. Um, maybe he's not up there with George Perez or Neil Adams, but he is much loved by a wide group of fans. He did amazing work for Marvel, uh, Daredevil, Iron Man, Tomb of Dracula, you name it. Here at DC, he did a lot of Batman. He drew several issues with Doug Minch on the Spectre, and, you know, he did a lot of things in his career that uh, earned him recognition as one of the legends of, of comic books. And I, and I don't want to 
sound like I am disparaging his art. I like Gene Colan. In his prime, he was a great artist. With a good inker, he was absolutely amazing. Sadly, on this issue, he was neither in his prime or paired with a solid inker. And worse, Colan's art, in my opinion, just doesn't really fit the character of Superman. And I realize he does a bang-up job on Batman, but when your story features both characters, you need an artist whose style fits both characters. And I hope no one takes that comment as a direct criticism of Colin's work. I, I don't really see it as a fault. I don't see it as a fault of him or his work that he doesn't fit Superman. I mean, that's just his style. Some of the best Superman artists wouldn't fit on a title like Tomb of Dracula. But that aside, the art here in this issue, it just often feels muddy and either unfinished or inconsistently finished. It goes from feeling like they rushed through it, maybe even coloring over the pencils at times, to a lighter finish, like it needs slicked up, even even just a, a little bit. If this was a story with the Spectre or, or a, a Supernatural-like character, I think it would be fine. But generally speaking, for, for Batman and Superman, you need the art to be a little sharper. If they were fighting a supernatural threat, I, I can possibly see this working. Uh, but it felt to me like the art didn't really mesh with the story that they were trying to tell, which, since the art wasn't the quality it could have been, it really hurt the story. Um, so getting into the story itself, it, like I said, it just really puts me in a weird position. It's part four of a five-part story. So this is even worse than what I ran into with the issue I looked at in episode two, because I'm thrown into the middle of a story and left with a cliffhanger. But we soldier on, and I'm going to try and judge the issue as fairly and as accurately as possible. (laughs) Unfortunately, I I don't even really know where to begin. Um, Well, the, the, the thing that stood out to me the most is that the issue is a lot of talking and exposition. There are only four action scenes in the issue that I would be there are, there are only four scenes in the issue that I would be comfortable with calling action. We have when Superman gets stabbed with a spear, Batman's rescue of Superman, Batman's near execution of Superman, and Superman's moon rescue. And of those four, all only really narrowly get the title of action scene. I mean the scene with Superman getting stabbed the action portion is two panels. They're basically all two panels, in fact, except for the moon rescue, which they kind of stretched out to a full page. And I'm somewhat okay with a lack of action, but the rest of the issue is so talky, and, and it, the dialogue is dense. I mean, a lot is thrown at us. Stuff that I don't, I don't get the feeling would be any easier to comprehend had I read the first three parts. And, and maybe I'm wrong, I have not read those issues, but this all seems new to the characters, and they go to such lengths to detail everything that I just don't feel it... I kind of feel like it was new to the readers as well. And if it wasn't new, then it was probably way overwritten. Having not read those other issues, it's hard to say how it could have been paced differently, but that doesn't change the fact that talking... The, the, taking this issue alone, it's just way too much talking. 
too much exposition and not enough action to break that up. Um, I don't understand why when Superman and Batman go inside the cosmic tree at the beginning of the issue, they find Zeta, and Zeta just doesn't want to fight anymore. He says he wants to meditate. Three pages earlier, we saw Superman and Batman standing amid the defeated bodies of the Pantheon, the rest of the Pantheon. And a page later, we learn via flashback recap that Superman and Batman have apparently been fighting these guys for several issues. And now Zeta just stops. Maybe the answer lies in the other issues, but with just this one, I don't get it. And to a certain extent, I, I think you have to fault that or fault the writer for that because every issue is potentially someone's first, and writers need to be able to write with that in mind, you know, and catch readers up as they go. And I know it can be difficult when you're writing a five-part story or a six-part story, but you know that's that's part of the job like like uh, super chicken you know you knew the job was dangerous when you took it so it and it isn't clear to me where these creatures are the way it's described the cosmic tree seems to be like a bridge between dimensions or possibly through a wormhole or something but other times it seems like the cosmic tree is inside or, or part of earth but when superman's in the cosmic tree He's powerless because of a red sun. Plus, if it was in the Earth, the creatures wouldn't be using the tree to get to Earth. It's just all very confusing. Um, there's a really weird scene about halfway through the book, kind of like an interlude, where they're basically playing the, the all subplots accounted for game uh, with the moon driller. Apparently there was a manned mission to the moon that the driller has interfered with somehow. They, they don't really give us any details. But we see a panel of two astronauts either dead or unconscious on the moon. From their capsule, a call is coming in from ground control, and we learn that the names of the astronauts are... Well, one of the astronauts is named Major Bowie, and he's later referred to as by his first name of David. I get the joke... But it's, it's really out of place here where they've got it. And I don't want to say it took me out of the comic, but look, I like pop culture references. I like in-jokes. I have no problem with them, but they have their place. And this didn't feel like it was the right place in this particular story. Um, th- there's really more I could talk about, but it's, it's all negative, and I, and I really, really do hate being so down on the issue because I don't want to be the podcast that just tears books down and I really do want to find the good in them when I can but this issue is just there's just not a lot good to talk about here and I fully acknowledge part of that might be because it's 20% of a larger story but that cannot be the only problem here but what I've decided to do is I'm going to make a note and when and if the other parts of the story come up in the rotation, I'm going to revisit this issue and see if that changes my view at all. Um, I won't re uh, resynopsize and, and redo a, a full episode of notes, but you know I may spend five minutes uh, just kind of going back through what I've said in this episode and and see if that changes. Um, I'm not holding out hope that that's going to happen, but you never know. Um, on a brighter note, 
<laughs> well, I guess it depends on, on how you look at it. But maybe the most interesting part of the issue is a portion I actually breezed through in my notes, or my synopsis. At the beginning of the story, Superman's all gung-ho about going after Zeta. And Batman really lays into him about it, saying that Superman wasn't quite so eager when one of his, his being Batman's, friends was in trouble. And we get an editor's note that this is a reference to Batman and the Outsiders number one, which was published about six months before this issue. Uh, There, Lucius Fox was kidnapped by Markovian terrorists. Superman and the Justice League are hesitant to mount a rescue, afraid of stirring up various diplomatic issues. So Batman ends up quitting the Justice League and forming the Outsiders, which then leads into that series. And back into this issue, uh, Batman's comments to Superman lead to an interesting back and forth between the two about the nature of right and wrong, uh, justice and the law, and, and really their place in it. Basically, Batman's point is that sometimes obtaining justice can supersede the law, where Superman's stance is, if they, as heroes, don't adhere to the law, then they are no better than the criminals they fight against. It's written very slash fictiony, which is why I called it a lover's quarrel, and they don't really come to a resolution in this issue. But this series of events is, to the best of my knowledge, the first time the two characters were shown as having significant philosophical differences in their approach to what they do. And that's something that would really be uh, nailed to the wall by Frank Miller in Dark Knight Returns, and then in continuity, post-crisis, by uh, John Byrne and about a decade's worth of writers that came after him. But I, I just found that interesting. Uh, a lot of people have this idea that Frank Miller or John Byrne is solely responsible for uh, quote-unquote torpedoing the world's finest friendship. But clearly, whether the, the uh, writers and editorial team at the time knew it or not, they were laying loose groundwork for that even back as far as 1983, you know, which is you know three or four years before Dark Knight and Man of Steel. Um, but that's it for issue 299. It's uh, my least favorite of the show so far, but like I said, I will revisit this if those other issues come up, and maybe my perception will change. We'll, we'll have to hang tight and, and see about that. Right now, we're going to... Uh, Take a break, play some promos for some really awesome podcasts that you should listen to, and then we'll be back for the second segment. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, 
I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Rocks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. World's Finest Comics number 299 has never been reprinted. But if you can't find it in the cheapo bin, I will be very, very surprised. As I mentioned, there are no other features during this era of the title, but there are several 80s-tastic advertisements. So we're going to spend a little more time on the ads this time um, than we have in previous episodes, because I, I just really got a kick out of this particular issue's ads. First up is an ad for the Masters of the Universe model kits. Uh, Not to be confused with the some assembly required vehicles that went with the action figures, these are actual model kits produced by Monogram. Uh, The two featured in the ad are for the Talon Fighter and the tragically misspelled Attack Track. I had no idea that they made model kits based on Masters of the Universe uh, vehicles. I, I guess I should have suspected it. But my guess is that a lot of these were sold and then subsequently destroyed by kids trying to use them like they were actual toys. Um, There's a Bubble Yum Bubblegum ad with some word puzzles that you can fill out and do if you want to completely destroy your comic. And then there's an ad for Star Wars model kits tying in with Return of the Jedi. Now these were produced by MPC which is not a company that I am um, really familiar with. But they must have been cheaper and lower quality than the He-Man kits because they don't actually show photos of them in the ad, Uh, just drawings, which were probably swiped from a comic book at some point, or a comic book somewhere, uh, because they're all on different planes of perspective and they are horribly out of proportion with one another. Uh, But the ad says that you can uh, get the shuttle... Tiderium, I believe that's how you pronounce it, the TIE Interceptor, and the Speeder Bike. Um, Oh, and then you can also get the Rebel Vehicles of the A-Wing Fighter and the B-Wing Fighter. So, and and much like the uh, 
Masters of the Universe figures. I'm sure many of these were purchased, assembled, and then shortly after destroyed by kids who actually played with them like they were the plastic, some assembly required vehicles. Um, but on the collector's market, I'm guessing, no matter what the quality, I'm guessing these command a much higher price, given that uh, Star Wars popularity greatly outranks that of Masters of the Universe. Uh, but then there's an ad for something called Star Frontiers, which is apparently a role-playing game like Dungeons & Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I've never heard of it. And the center spread. Oh, the center spread. Is an epic two-page ad for NBC Saturday morning. We got the jazz. If you were a kid in 1983, your butt was no doubt planted in front of your television every Saturday morning. If you tuned into NBC, you could be entertained by the Flintstone Funnies, the Shirt Tails, Smurfs, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Mr. T, Amazing Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk, and yes, it says Spider-Man, and Thundar the Barbarian. I remember watching Smurfs and Alvin and the Chipmunks, uh, but both shows were shown almost continuously through the 1980s. And I remember watching reruns of Spider-Man and his amazing friends on Sundays before church when I was really, really young. Uh, but as for the others, I I don't remember watching them at all. Uh, I remember shirt tails, like the, the stuffed dolls, you know, from when I was young. Um, but these others, I've heard of Thundar the Barbarian, obviously, and I've, I've probably heard of Flintstone Funnies. Uh, but I don't. I don't remember watching either one, and I had no. I, I didn't even remember that there was a Mr. T cartoon. Uh, but I, I actually pulled up the uh, the theme song, the opening theme or the opening sequence on YouTube, and it looks really terrible. Uh, so maybe it's a case of I pity the foo who actually watched the Mr. T cartoon. I don't know. Uh, but let's see. The next ad is an ad for Sergeant Rock, Arak, Warlord, and Hercules five and a quarter inch action figures available at Kmart. They, I'm sure these were cool figures. I actually looked a couple of them up on uh, Google Images, the, the Sergeant Rock ones. They look like cool figures, but given that they are five and a quarter inches, that, that's just big enough to look really out of place with the far superior three and three quarter inch G.I. Joe figures. Uh, we get a video game ad for War Room for ColecoVision. Play the game the generals play. Dot, dot, dot. For real. It's War Room, the new high-technology Probe 2000 strategy game for the ColecoVision game system. The game that's so realistic, generals might even play it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure generals were just... Uh, I mean, the ColecoVision was known for its truer-than-life graphics, so I'm sure that graf the generals were just uh, lining up to get their hands on this thing. Although, maybe General Scar from Episode 2 played it. It, it would explain a lot. Uh, next up is an ad for Superman Peanut Butter, with an awesome shot of Superman flying directly at the reader. I don't know for sure who drew this, but it looks like Dick Giordano at least inked it, because I, I can definitely see some Dick Giordano in it. Um, but it's a really awesome ad, and I I might include this, and in, in, i tell you what, I will include this in the show notes at greatcrypton.com. 
in the ad they are plugging a special promotion where if you send in two labels from Superman Peanut Butter, you can get a free reprint of Action Comics number one. Uh, sadly, the offer expired on May 31st, 1984, so we missed it by just a couple days. Uh, the inside back cover is an ad for the arcade... Um, I'm not really sure classic is the right word, but the, we'll, we'll go with uh, arcade game. I guess that's fairly accurate. But anyway, Bump and Jump, now produced by Mattel for the Intellivision and the Atari 2600. And the back cover, no man on Earth has ever had such power. He's the Power Lord. Power Lords, the extraterrestrial warriors. Definitely something that was out of toy fashion by the time I became old enough to be aware of, you know, what was happening in the toy, in the toy aisle. Uh, that, uh, but they did have a mini-series from around this time, though, produced by DC. I've never read it. Can't say this ad makes me want to read it. It actually looks like a weird... Uh, and, and please, if anyone out there is a Power Lords fan, please don't take offense to this, but it looks like a weird He-Man knockoff, uh, possibly with a little... Uh, Buck Rogers and uh, yeah, a little Buck Rogers thrown in somehow, but um, the figures to me remind me of Masters of the Universe figures. Uh, the articulation is different. I'm guessing these were maybe you know six inches tall or so. Um, they look a little bigger than GI Joe. The, the photos are not very good, but I don't know. If anyone knows about the Power Lords, write in and let me know. Uh, but speaking of other things that DC had out around this time, let's head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics and jump in the time machine for a look at what else was happening around the spinner rack in October 1983. And wow, there's a lot of books out this month. Uh, once again, we're just going to hit the highlights, but uh, let's see what stands out. Well, first up is DC Comics Presents number 65, which is a Superman Madame Xanadu story illustrated by Gray Morrow. And that was one of the few times he illustrated the character. Uh, he also did a uh, World of Krypton backup at some point and the, and the two-issue Lois Lane miniseries that came out right around the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, but this is one of the few times he drew Superman himself. So if you are a Gray Morrow fan, be sure to track this down. Batman 367 and Detective Comics 534 has the Dark Knight battling Poison Ivy in what I'm pretty sure is her last significant appearance before Crisis. Flash 329 has an appearance by Superman uh, while the Flash takes on Gorilla Grodd. And this issue is part of the Trial of the Flash storyline that carried on through 1985 and, and kind of wound up Barry Allen's story before they... Uh, killed him off in crisis I've never read the entire story but uh, I probably should someday they, they recently released a showcase volume that collects uh, at least the significant parts of the storyline so maybe I should check that out New Teen Titans number 38 kicks off the Who Is Donna Troy arc which is another storyline that's considered classic but I've never read uh, Superman 391 I actually bring this up for two reasons. One, it's got Vartox in it. Nothing wrong with Vartox. But two, I think this, well, this and the next issue, were Elliot S. Magan and Carrie Bates' last collaborations on Superman. 
Uh, both kept writing the character after this, uh, off and on. I don't think either were the regular writer, uh, or were considered a regular writer of the character for very much longer. Um, but but they did. But anyway, they kept writing, but separately and without a, a co-writer credit. Uh, if I'm wrong about that, I'm, I'm sure Charlie Niemeyer, host of the ever awesome Superman of the Bronze Age, will will uh, let me know. But anyway, uh, oh, Green Lantern 172, which was the beginning of the Len Wein Dave Gibbons era on the title, as Hal Jordan returned to Earth and the title got kind of a, uh, a back to basics revamp. If you are interested in hearing more about this particular era of Green Lantern, give a listen to Green Lantern's Light, where uh, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, and I covered all things Green Lantern from this issue up to about 1987 or so. Uh, we had to call it quits on the show uh, just before Millennium. Uh, but we had a good time. We even interviewed Len Wein about his run on the title, which was really, really cool. Um... DC launched a new title this month, New Talent Showcase, and this was an anthology book um, that acted as a a showcase for, well, new talent. It's kind of right there in the title. Um, It lasted only about a year and a half, but the title featured some of the earliest comics work from creators like uh, Tom Mandrake, Darwin Cook, Norm Brayfogle, Steve Lytle, and I think Carl Kessel. Although, uh, and I could be wrong, but I think Kessel was just doing inking at this time. No, no writing from him. But, but still, uh, there's Power Lords number two. Buy the toys, read the comic. Wish you would have spent your money on GI Joes. Uh, let's see, Saga of the Swamp Thing twenty. This is oh, this is the big issue too, because this is the first issue of Alan Moore's classic run on the character. Uh, it just seemed like there was a lot of. Classic storylines uh, getting underway at this time. We got the Flash, the Trial of the Flash, who is Donna Troy, and uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. It's hard to believe that in just three years they will have flushed all this down the tubes. Um, and finally, there is All Star Squadron Twenty Nine, which revisits the uh, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Uh, but that's it for this this episode. Uh, we've kind of gone on a <laughs> a little longer than I thought. I, man, I, I really didn't have much to say about this issue, but I, I guess I had more than I thought. Um, be sure to keep writing in and let me know your thoughts on the show. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to read emails as I get them or kind of save them up and do mailbag episodes once in a while. Um, but do keep writing in. Let me know your thoughts on the show or this episode if you have a certain Superman, Batman team up from throughout the last, you know, 60 years that you want me to cover, let me know that. Uh, But I will, will be back next episode with another issue of World's Finest Comics. Until then, I hope you have a great time, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Hanging from the cosmic tree, a universal planted seed, a higher understanding that can touch a newborn heart. Take a look at history As far as human eyes can see Man will always tear his world apart Mm, Stop, look around, can't you see The galaxy of life will shed you from its tree Mm, Stop, look around, 
Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers at greatcrypton.com slash Siegel Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together.
closing song for this episode was Cosmic Tree by Four Hero from their 1998 album Two Pages. To be honest, I have no idea if this song is available for purchase. But if it is, I'm sure you can get it or the album by visiting twotruefreaks.com. Click on the banner in the upper left corner of the site and be redirected to Amazon.com. Buy an MP3 or physical copy of the song, and Two True Freaks will get a little kickback. So not only will you be getting new tunes for your music library, but you'll be helping out some of the hardest working folks in podcasting. And best of all, it won't cost you anything extra.